Here at Calvary Chapel Northeast, it's our goal to make disciples of Christ by exalting our God, equipping believers, and engaging in our community. Thanks for tuning in to this week's CCNE podcast. Today, Pastor Brendan will be teaching out of the book of 1 Thessalonians. Tonight we get into an exciting passage of Scripture. I mean, this is probably one of the most considered passages of Scripture that we have in the Bible. It's certainly one of the most debated passages of Scripture, and that would be 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, really through the end of the chapter, and maybe even into about half of chapter 5. This is the section where we have what we call the rapture of the church. And uh, we're going to consider this topic here tonight. I know it's an exciting topic. It should be exciting. It should be encouraging. It should be, as Scripture says, literally, this should be something that is of comfort to us. When we get done tonight, the things that we discuss should be an encouragement to us. It should be a comfort to us. We have a hope in Jesus Christ. And there's a couple of things that we hope for. What we see in this passage here tonight is that there's really a couple of things that that specifically the church in Thessalonica was hoping for. One was they were hoping to see their loved ones again. They were hoping to see their friends again who had died in Christ, believers who had died. There was a concern on their part as to what was going to happen with them. Would they see them again? Would they miss the gathering of the church? Would they miss Jesus Christ coming and gathering together His church? So that's one thing, and and so we should have hope tonight that those who, who die in Christ, we will see them again. That's exciting for us. That should comfort us. The second thing that they're hoping in and that we see that this church is very much focused upon is the fact that Jesus is coming again. Can I get an amen to that? Jesus is coming Okay? Scripture is clear on that. That is not debatable. And we'll consider that also here tonight. And so those things should give us hope. Now, before I go into this passage of Scripture here specifically, I I was chatting with a couple of you earlier today, and uh, you know I've been praying through a couple of things just even over the past couple of days. And while I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this here tonight, I do recognize, and I'll give you a heads up here, that this is a pretty heavy topic. But I do want to take the opportunity tonight because here's here's the deal. We're gathered together as as the church right now, okay? Whether it's whether it's in here in the sanctuary or whether it's online, right now is one of our regular gatherings. And I feel that for me as a pastor, as an under-shepherd, as well as the lead pastor of this church, that I have a responsibility to recognize things that are happening in our country right now. I think it's fitting also as we consider this passage here tonight, and as we look at something that is in fact intended to be really the one thing that as Christians we are looking forward to right now. I mean, the return of Jesus is is for us what we should be about, what we should be focused on, what we should be thinking about. It should motivate everything that we do. We know that in this in this letter here, it is about living in light of Christ's return. This letter compels us, it teaches us, it exhorts us, it challenges us on the way in which we're living our life in light of knowing that He's coming back. And so even as I've already mentioned why this serves as a hope and why this serves as an encouragement, it also serves to compel us to to do something about the life that we're living. If He's coming, and He's coming soon, there's things that we need to be doing, whether that be sharing the gospel, uh, whether that be how we're treating one another, how we're living out uh, what it means to be the church, or we be in a light in a dark place. And the fact is, we have come to a place in in our world, certainly, but also in our country, where in the past two months have been just a significant disruption. 
right? I mean, for us, you, you, you can go online and you can look at just all the different things that people are saying, man, 2020 is just this crazy year. Even if you want to talk about you've got COVID and then you've got killer bees and murder hornets or whatever, right? And then you've got like, oh, we're getting hurricanes that before we're supposed to be getting hurricanes and tropical storms and just like, what else is going to happen? There, there's just major disruption happening. But then what's even more sad then is that because of that pressure, rather than, and I'm not saying there's not, uh, I think the church is at work, certainly. I, I think that there are wonderful things happening in the midst of this. I do think there's aspects of revival that are happening right now. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't seek to discount that. But sadly, what we're not really seeing right now in our country is a great sense of unity. We're not seeing a unification happening. We're not seeing, uh, even though the church is at work, it doesn't seem as if we're seeing a significant impact from that to where people and communities are really beginning to come together. And instead, what we are seeing is, um, I mean, go through the list. We're seeing an increase in suicide. We're seeing an increase in reports of depression. Suicide hotlines, uh, addiction hotlines are ringing off the hook. We're seeing an increase in human trafficking. We're seeing an increase in, as I mentioned, addiction, and that would include you know, pornography consumption, which is directly correlated with human trafficking and offenses towards other people. Uh, we're seeing, even in our own community, uh, we're seeing increase in in road rage, not only experienced by people in the church, but literally we're hearing about it on the news. We're seeing an increase in shootings. Um, we're seeing an increase in domestic violence, and certainly not only locally but across our country, we're seeing an increase in what would absolutely be characterized as uh, racial attacks, racially motivated attacks, racially motivated uh, shootings and and to go back to my earlier point, I don't know that we can gather as the church. I don't know that I can stand before you this evening and not simply say that what we're seeing happening, it's, it's wrong. It's the product of sin. It should cause us to hope all that much more. And, and go ahead and accuse me of having an escapist mentality. But yes, it causes me to say even more so, Maranatha, Lord Jesus, come. There's something wrong in our world today, very wrong. I honestly, here's, here's what I'll tell you right now. I don't know what to say about it all tonight, particularly the issues that are of a racial nature. As a pastor right now, I have, I have, many, I have many thoughts, I have many prayers, but I, I don't fully know what to do other than to say, and I've had many conversations today about this very thing, other than to say, and hear me in this as your pastor, I know that these events affect people in our body and in our community in a multitude of different ways. They affect people. And so please hear from me tonight that the things that are happening, even, even this week, whether it's this, uh, the video taken in the park, or whether it's ongoing issues related to Ahmaud Arbery in that case, or whether it's this thing that happened in Minneapolis. Listen, I understand this much that it has an effect on people, and that what it brings up and what people are dealing with runs deep. And if there's anybody in this world right now who's going to bring light into these situations, it must be the church. It must be the church. We must bring the gospel to bear 
on these situations, on these relationships, on this extreme division that we're seeing in our country today. We must. And so I guess simply what I want to convey, and, is, and we'll make our way into the, into the study here tonight, and, and again, I think, I hope that this gives us all hope, but what I would want to communicate to, to at least just this body of Calvary Chapel and, and those, of you, those of you watching and hopefully those that will watch, I hope you'd encourage people to at least watch the beginning here just so they can hear from me on this, that I would ask that you, one, that you pray for me as your pastor regarding these very issues, that I would have wisdom for how to navigate this, that we as the body would have an understanding of how to work through these things, that in the weeks and months ahead, that we would find ways to address these issues, to be open and transparent with one another about the way things in our country are affecting us, be willing to share and listen as to how people are feeling about these things, such that we could be an example and I think in many respects we already are as a church. And that's one of the reasons I'm increasingly concerned about this, because I do believe that we have a very unique body. We have a diverse body uh, that loves one another well, that where there is unity. But I don't want things to begin to disrupt that because we're not being sensitive enough to really understand how are these things, how are these things affecting you. We've got to be willing to have dialogue. We've got to be willing to have conversation. And so I just want you to know that the Lord is stirring something in my heart as it relates to this, all of these issues, but especially those that are racially motivated. The Lord is certainly stirring my heart. But in many respects, this is shaky ground, right? Because I'll be, I'll be fully transparent with you that, you know, I have my own blind spots as it relates to these issues, right? And so I want for us to be able to deal with it, but to deal with it in a way where it's constructive and it's encouraging and it's helpful and it's healing. And I pray that tonight that makes sense. And so this is just the be this to me is the beginning of something. And I don't, as I mentioned, I don't necessarily have, you know, I can't, I can't stand before you tonight and say, hey, this is what we need to do, or this is what we're going to do, and this is exactly what's going to happen, or how we bring healing into some of these situations. I just know that the frequency at which we're seeing these various acts of violence and this hatred towards one another, it's increasing. I shared with Pastor Bobby earlier this week, it feels as if this world is a powder keg right now, ready to go off. And so I don't stand here going, man, I, I think I can stop all of that. But I stand before you tonight saying as a small representation of the church, we can do something here, and we ought to. And so I'd ask you all to be in prayer about that, and that we would deal with these things, and that we would maybe begin... Uh, to really demonstrate for our community what the church ought to look like as it relates to these particular issues. Does that make sense? In the Gospel of John, we have Jesus' prayer, the longest prayer that we have recorded of Jesus. And he says uh, in chapter 17 and verse 20, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. You see what the implication is there? How will the world know that God sent Jesus, his son? Because of what they see in the church. That's what will testify. And that speaks of unity. The church, brothers and sisters in Christ, must be one. And right now we're just seeing so much division. We're seeing... <laughs> 
It's so divisive out there. And so we, we need to lead the way in that. Amen? Okay. Well, let me pray for us once more as we look to his word. Father, uh, we turn our attention to your word here now. And I pray, Lord, I know, Lord, you've heard us thus far. And so, Father, I pray that um, you would answer that prayer. Not necessarily in, in any way that, Lord, we expect, but that you would just work in us and through us, that you, Lord, might perhaps do a new work in this body, Lord, such that we could be an example of what it means to be a unified body of Christ, an example to our community, that we could be a part of bringing healing, that we could be a part of change, that we could certainly, Lord, above all else, bring you glory through the relationships that we have as brothers and sisters in Christ. And Father, as we look to your word here now, give us a passion for it, Lord, an excitement for it. Um, bless our time in it, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. First um, Thessalonians chapter 4 here, we're in verse 13. Uh, we know that Paul, in a short period of time, covered many different topics with the Thessalonians. Uh, when Timothy visited, what he did is he brought back word, if you recall, to Paul of different things that were happening, and that's what prompted this first letter. One of the things that Timothy brings back to Paul is that they were struggling with their understanding of the return of Christ and the recent deaths of some of their fellow believers, okay? People had died, and they were saying, we, we're concerned about this. We don't know what's going to happen to them, and especially because they were so focused on the return of Christ, they were beginning to think that those who had died were going to miss it, that they were somehow going to miss out on the regathering of God's people. Now, this was fueled probably both by their own confusion and then just the debate that ensued, right? They had spent a short period of time with Paul. He had taught them many things. He's left now. Maybe they didn't write it all down, and they're sort of going, okay, um, what was it that he said here? And, and other people start to share their opinions, and we know how this happens, right? Where then Scripture starts to be a little bit misinterpreted because people are kind of bringing their own opinions to bear on it. If you watch the Q&A from this week, that would be called eisegesis, if we really wanted to look at it technically, that somebody takes Scripture and they look and they, they, they bring their viewpoint to bear upon it instead of pulling out from it. Now, they didn't have the written text to deal with. They're just going off of what Paul had had talked to them about while they were there. So confusion is abounding. And then and then later on, in fact, in, in the second letter that Paul writes to them, um, in, in chapter 2, in 2 Thessalonians in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, Paul will write there, Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word, or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. What does that mean? It means that somebody had been circulating a letter in their area pretending to be Paul, and it was misinformation. Listen, fake news was happening even at that time, right? <laughs> this talk of fake news and misinformation campaigns, and that's no new thing. It's been going on forever. And so they were being kind of led astray. And so here, this topic that Paul's dealing with in his first letter, he's going to deal with again in the second letter. You see, they were so focused on the return of Christ. And then all this stuff is coming in. And, and this still happens today, right? I mean, especially about the return of Christ. How often do we have somebody say, well, I know when Christ is going to return. Or, uh, you know, I know when this is going to happen. I know the date that this is going to happen. And then it's, and people get confused, even right now with COVID-19 and all this stuff. How many people are coming out and saying, well, if, if this is the mark of the beast, and this is the Antichrist, and this is this, and this is that, and everything else, right? And then you find yourself going, well, is that true? Is it not true? It's the same type of thing that's happening right now, okay? And so here they're concerned about the fact that, uh, that the gathering of the church had already happened. 
And that they were now experiencing the wrath of God because persecution was increasing against them. So they're thinking, boy, if this is right, the rapture's already happened. Christ has already regathered his church. We missed it somehow. And now we're experiencing the wrath of God. We're experiencing tribulation. What's happening here? And so Paul's trying to deal with these things. So there was false teaching. There was misunderstanding. And we'll see here that Paul calls their attention back to what they were taught. He brings them back to the word and he gives them God's word again. Okay. And so let's go ahead and read together just the first section of this here in 1 Thessalonians in chapter 4. Let's read verses 13 through 18. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Here he says in verse 13, in the beginning, the first half of this, but I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, uninformed. This is a reminder to us that ignorance of the Word of God causes issues. Let's understand that if we don't know the Word of God, it is going to cause issues in our life. It's going to create confusion. It's going to increase anxiety. Listen, are some of you anxious about the times in which we are living? Some of you here, some of you watching online, I would suspect some of you are saying, yes, I'm a little bit anxious about the things that are happening right now. Now, I'm not saying you're necessarily ignorant because you're anxious, but I would say ignorance of the Word of God will only increase your anxiety, okay? If you are dealing with anxiety, if you're dealing with concern, if you're dealing with fear, develop a thorough understanding of His Word and take comfort from it. The more we know about His Word, the more rooted we are in His Word, the more we are able to navigate the different things that come at us in life. The more we can find ourselves going through life and its trials without anxiety, without fear, because we trust in His Word. Now, what does Paul want them to not be ignorant about here in this case? the very thing that they were struggling with. And so that proves the point. And here he refers to it. He says, concerning those who have fallen asleep, he knows that this is their concern. I don't want you to be ignorant about this. And I'll consider this euphemism for death here shortly, okay? Because here he's saying that they have fallen asleep. You might have picked up on that right away. They've died, okay? But he's referring to them as only asleep. We'll come back to that here in a second. Now, they were concerned here. They probably missed them, right? There was just, in general, there was grief. What's going to happen? I think we can relate to that as well. If we've lost a loved one, there even if we're we're well versed in Scripture, we may still find ourselves a little curious, wondering a little bit. Okay, what's this all like now that death is maybe a little bit more real to me? So there was grief, perhaps that they might not see them again, and then secondly, what of Christ's return? They were so focused on Christ's return that they were wondering: Are those who have died are they going to miss it? because they were living in constant anticipation of it. For them, day after day, they were thinking, maybe today's the day. Maybe he's coming back today. And they were concerned, what about those that have died? Are they going to be there with us? These are reasonable concerns. And so this young church, they were so focused on Christ's return, and they should be commended for that. But their misunderstanding of God's word was causing unnecessary grief. Man, could we apply that to a million different scenarios in our life, right? When we misunderstand his word, it can cause grief in our lives. 
And so they were beginning to sorrow. Look what Paul says. Lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. They were beginning to sorrow like people who didn't have hope. And Paul at this point is thinking, I've told you that you, should, that, that, that you don't need to have uh, sadness in that way as, as those who have no hope. Friends, this is an exhortation that is ever as applicable to us today as it was then. We as believers, whether with death or with any other loss, are not to sorrow as those who have no hope. We have every reason to hope because of Christ. Do you believe that tonight? We have every reason to have hope because of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again, what? To a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You see, because Jesus Christ has been resurrected from the dead, we have that same hope. And so especially as it pertains to death, we needn't sorrow, we needn't be worried if we know Christ. We have hope. And so what we are seeing here is Paul is beginning to turn their attention, and once again, I might add, he's turning their attention back to the return of Jesus Christ and the hope that we have in it. He's been doing this all along through the whole book, whether it's in 1 Thessalonians in chapter 1 and verse 10, it was the return of Christ. If it's in chapter 2 and verse 19, he's talking about Christ's return. If it's in chapter 3 and verse 13, he's talking about Christ's return. So here he brings their attention back again. What is the lesson there for us, guys, when you're struggling? What do you think about? What do you think about? Say it. Christ coming back. This, I mean, this, this needs to be our hope. But how many of you recognize that the return of Christ often is the cause of anxiety in many people's lives? Why? Because we're uninformed. Because we don't have a thorough understanding of it. We're not spending time in His Word. We're not spending time getting to know Him more to where it is getting to the place where we say, that, that's all I want. So I'm not faulting anyone, but we should be in a place where we say, I, I want Jesus. I want him to come back. That's my encouragement. That's my hope. Verse 14, for if we believe... Now, so now he brings them back to this. He's giving them doctrine here. He's, he's bringing them back to the foundation. If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. And so you see, first he points them back to the foundation of their faith, this living hope that we have. This is the Socratic method of argument here that he's using, really. That he begins with what they already know to be true and have accepted, and then he uses that as a way to help get them to where they they need to be in terms of their understanding. So he goes back to the beginning, and then he encourages them that those who sleep in Jesus, those who have died, that they will come with him. So now he's beginning to address the very concern that they have. And so he's using this euphemism here for death, which is sleep, which is only, by the way, ever used of believers. Okay, nowhere else in Scripture, and I've touched on this before, it wasn't that long ago that we considered aspects of this passage, uh, that it's only when you hear that somebody is, they're dead, but we say that they're sleeping, that's only a believer, not an unbeliever. Okay, that's important. Now, why is it important for us to consider this idea of sleep? Why would he use this euphemism for sleep? Well, let's be honest with ourselves. The majority of us, we like to sleep, right? There's not many people other than little babies who don't like to sleep. Okay, now some of us, you want to sleep longer than other people. And that's okay. You just love it a little bit more, right? We all have the same outlook towards it for the most part, that one, sleep is harmless. 
We don't fear sleep. Okay, sleep comes to us as a welcomed relief, doesn't it? When you lay your head down on your pillow at night and it's been a long day and you just, oh, thank you, God. I'm going to bed. I'm going to sleep. When you sleep, you expect to wake up. Otherwise, I suspect many of you wouldn't be going to sleep necessarily. You'd be, there'd be a little bit more fear and trepidation about going to sleep. You expect to wake up. You know that it's temporary. Sleep equals rest. It equals rejuvenation. We know that sleep serves to shut out the sorrows from the day. Sometimes it's just been that bad of a day. We just need, I just got to go to sleep. I just I got to sleep. We wake easily from sleep. Again, some more easily than others. That's kind of funny. <laughs> My wife is smiling at me. We were very different in that regard. I spring out of bed, not intentionally. It's just sort of like, it's just like this reflex. <laughs> right? Ashley's different in that regard. Okay? And then you guys know. Even you know, you know which one you are. You need the whole bucket of water thrown on you. Sleep prepares your body for the next day. Okay, it's necessary. Did you get a good night's sleep? Students wrapping up your exams, right? Did you, did you get some good sleep? You got an athletic contest. You've got different things you're going to do. Big day at work. Did you get enough sleep? It prepares you. And here's the other thing. When you drive down the road and you see this mass uh, green space with things that we call tombstones, what do you call that? cemetery, right? You call it a cemetery. You know what that comes from? The Greek komaterion. You know what that means? A rest house for strangers or a sleeping place. Isn't that interesting? That's what that word comes from. And so even Christians adopted this term because of this, because of Scripture, saying those are just bodies that are asleep. Now that's the important thing that I mentioned there. Bodies that are asleep. So let me just address for a moment here, any of you ever heard of something called soul sleep? Soul sleep. It's not biblical. If somebody talks to you about soul sleep, what they're suggesting is that when we die, Christians, when they die, you don't go anywhere until the resurrection, that you're just sort of like asleep. You're not aware. You're, you're unconscious, if you will. That's not biblical. You can't prove that in scripture. Sleep here only refers to the body, not the soul. We know that Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5, 8, we are confident, yes, well, pleased rather to be absent from body and to be present with the Lord. We know that when we are absent from body, when our soul is absent from body, we are with Christ. Similarly, but conversely, we also see in Luke 16 and verses 22 and 23, it's about the rich man Lazarus, and he dies without Christ. Where does he go? So he immediately goes to Hades. There's not this in-between time for our souls, only for our bodies. And so listen, guys, what this means for us here, what we have to recognize, especially kids, younger ones who are still grapp grappling a little bit more with this idea of, of death and his return, death has nothing on us as Christians. Pastor Chuck, I think it was even years before he died, he would talk about, listen, when I die, here's what I want you right in my obituary. Not that he has died, that he was laid to rest, but simply that he had moved. He changed residence. He wanted people to understand that he was just not here in California anymore, that he had a new address because he was that confident, right, in the fact that there is no death for me. Oh, death, where is your sting? We, ha we have to understand this. And so, yes, there is sadness, for those that we lose, but only in so far as we wait to see them again, just the simple fact that we, we miss them. So death prior to the return of Christ simply means that our souls are with him in heaven, 
and our bodies are awaiting a glorious resurrection. Now, will we recognize people when this time comes? Yes, you will. Did people recognize Jesus? Yes, they did. Why would we not recognize each other? Well, because you're going to be this little funny chubby baby looking thing in a diaper floating around with a harp on clouds, right? And these just will be totally different. That's not it, and that's not heaven, folks. Okay, Listen, if heaven is so awesome, then I guarantee it's not going to be me floating on a cloud playing a harp in a diaper. It's just not it. Heaven's going to be awesome. It's not going to be that. And we will recognize one another. Now, what about, what about a child who, who sadly passes away and they're, they're young, they're little? What does their glorified body look like? We don't know. If we want to look at creation and we want to look at the Garden of Eden, seems to be that he was created as like a young, healthy man. Eve, similarly, young, healthy woman. So will we be resurrected in those types of bodies? Maybe. We don't exactly know. So how will I recognize that person? You'll recognize him. Think about John on the Isle of Patmos. And he hears Jesus' voice, right? There's a sense of, I know who this is. And he turns around and he looks at him and he's different, but he still knows it's Jesus. So rest assured, we'll know one another. That should be an encouragement. Verse 15, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. This is the wonderful encouragement here to this body. As he says to them, listen, you guys are alive right now, and those that have died that you're sad and you're wondering about them, listen, you're not going to go before them. They're going to go before you, them first. You'll be with them. He wants to encourage them here. I should note here that that Paul, and we'll... We'll certainly deal with this here shortly. Paul is very much writing to them from a pastoral perspective. We would wish maybe when we're done with this chapter that he was writing a bit more from a doctrinal perspective, that he gave us a little bit more insight into the way in which these events were going to unfold, but he doesn't. He's writing to them as a pastor. He's writing to them to encourage them here, okay? And so he says, look, they're going to go before you. So here he gives them the definitive answer that, for, that regarding their loved ones who had passed away, they will rise again. Now Paul begins to give us insight into this particular time, the Lord Jesus' return for his church, his bride, that's us. Now we can wish again that he'd given us a little bit more detail as we dive into this here, but he doesn't. So we've got to work with what we've got. As he writes in verses 16 and 17, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Now we're going to camp out here on these couple of verses for a little while, okay? This passage here again is one of perhaps the most contested, debated, and considered passages in Scripture. Paul here is speaking, again, of the return of Christ for his church. So he's here describing the rapture of the church. Now, some people want to say, well, the word rapture isn't found in in Scripture. They look at this and they say, where does it say rapture here? Well, true. In the original wording, you may not see the word rapture. You also don't see trinity the word Trinity in Scripture, but yet we don't seem to have a problem, most of us, accepting the fact that it speaks of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? But 
if you look at the original language here, I think we really do have this, okay? In the Greek, this term caught up, it's the Greek word harpazo, which really means the definition of that is a snatching away or a violent catching up. Now, when you hear that term violent, don't be scared by that. It's not like, oh, this is really going to hurt. It's, it's more of just like it's, it's boom, just like, like it, is, it is coming, okay? It's going to be quick. It's going to be fast. Now, in the Latin, this word harpazo is translated to rapturos, which means what? Rapture. So there you get your word rapture in the Bible, okay? So what I would submit to you this evening is that this term rapture, and the fact that Jesus is coming back for his church and our going up to him, that this part should not be debated at all. I don't believe that this should be debated at all. Anybody who wants to suggest that there isn't any form of rapture of Jesus coming for his church and catching us up, I don't know where they would be getting that, okay? I don't believe that that should be debated. Jesus, listen, Jesus is coming again. He is coming for his church. The dead in Christ will not miss this event. And this should give us hope. That much is quite clear, right? Can we agree on that? Now, in one book that I was reading, it noted that 23 of the 27 books in the New Testament reference Jesus coming again. 23 of the 27. And that one of every 30 verses in the New Testament either speaks directly of his coming or the events surrounding it. You think it's important? I mean, it is, it is just filled throughout the New Testament. This is what everybody's talking about. This is what everyone's writing about. Scripture is clear also that Christ's return is imminent. This is called the doctrine of imminency. It means that it is, it is next. It is soon. That there is nothing else that needs to happen. That his return for his church could happen at any moment. Could happen tonight. Could happen while I'm still speaking. Could happen tomorrow morning. Could happen a week from now, a month from now. Could happen a year from now. It can happen at any point. It is imminent. It is the next thing to occur. There is nothing else that needs to happen. And furthermore, there is no other sign that needs to be given for it. Okay? We're not looking for a sign at this point. We're not looking for any sort of sign. We could do this all night if we were to consider every 30, one of every 30 verses or, or whatever the case may be there. But I mean, Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, for our citizenship is where? In heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Or Colossians chapter 3, verse 4, when Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Or James chapter 5, verse 8, you also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Or in uh, Titus in chapter 2, verse 13, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Or in Revelation in chapter 3, verse 3, here speaking to the, um, I think this is the church in Laodicea. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard, hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I come upon you. All throughout Scripture, over and over again, Jesus is, is saying, through the Spirit, I'm coming back. Now, what else does this passage tell us about his return? The fact that it is imminent means that it will be sudden, as I've already alluded to. Listen, everyone is, is, is looking around trying to determine the signs of the times. I say everyone, that's a relative term, right? But there's people who are trying to figure out what, when's it happening. And I, I don't necessarily 
think that that's bad per se. I mean, we should be looking. We should be aware. Scripture compels us to that. But there is no other sign of His coming. We have to understand that. The signs that are listed in Scripture, with the exception, in my opinion, of the first few verses of Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse, that's where, and you've heard me reference it, and other ref- others have referenced it a few times, where it says there will be wars, rumors of wars, pestilence and disease, and so on. I do believe that those are indications of the signs of the time, and I think, and some disagree about this. Some would say that that Matthew 24 doesn't include anything pre-rapture, that it only includes things post-rapture. And I think those first few verses do speak to the time that we're living in right now. But then that ends, and it shifts into tribulation time. Okay, so with the exception of those general things that are happening, that's what we can look at. That's what we can look at around us and go, it's the end times, folks. I I don't need to go stand down there with a sign right now. I mean, it's just like, we should just know it. These are the end times. These are crazy times. But that's it. There's not going to be another specific sign for us. Anything after that point in Matthew 24 or uh, in in Revelation, post really Revelation chapter 4 on, the the things that you see there, those aren't signs that we should be looking for. Anybody right now trying to say, well, I think I know who the Antichrist is. No, you don't. You don't. (laughs) That is not, I mean, we don't know who the Antichrist is. And you're not going to church if you're a believer. Listen, listen, anybody who's a believer who tells me, like, I think I know who the Antichrist is, again, you're wrong. And listen, you don't want to see, you don't want to know who the Antichrist is. You know why? Because you'll be in the tribulation. That's when he'll be revealed. Okay? So we're not looking for any other signs right now other than just what the world is already telling us. The whole world is groaning, crying out, telling us, man, we are in the end times. And, and so what we know is coming next is what we've just seen in, in 1 Thessalonians, what we see in 1 Corinthians in chapter 15 and verses 51 and 52, such an incredible passage of Scripture. We will not all fall asleep, but we will be changed in a moment, in the blink of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we will be changed in the twinkling of an eye. We want that. We should be longing for that. This is what we're looking forward to. And so the call, we know, Scripture tells us here that the call will come to us in three forms. We don't know much about this, why, why Paul writes it this way, other than he says there will be a shout with the voice of an archangel and the sound of a trumpet. I don't know what that's going to sound like. But the shout that's the, with the voice of an archangel and the sound of a trumpet that's going to uh, round up all of his church and awaken those who have died in Christ is going to have to be a pretty incredible sound. I can't help but think of John 11 when I read this, right? John 11, when he's calling Lazarus forth from the grave. Many people have often said, when he calls Lazarus, what does he say? Lazarus, come forth. That they're like, man, you better believe he said Lazarus's name, because if he had just said come forth, it'd have been like, whoops, did that too early. I just called everybody out. Okay? He was speaking to Lazarus in that moment. Jesus got it right there. What His voice, the way he called him, Lazarus knew, I'm going back. And I got to think that Lazarus was like, for real? <laughs> like, I don't want to go back. You know, why would he want to come back? Other than it was the voice of Jesus. He was like, all right, here we go. But where he was was far better. You know, he was in peace. He wasn't in that world. So whatever this is, we don't know what this is going to be. Other than we can have confidence, we're going to know it. You're going to know it when you hear it. If he says, my sheep will hear my voice, rest assured when that trumpet sounds, we're going to know. We're going to respond. So the dead in Christ will rise first. Now listen, this is important. And so maybe I'd take back my 
statement on Lazarus. I don't know. I don't know what that was like for him when he died, but here's the thing. When it says the dead in Christ will rise first, that's the dead who are in Christ. What's the implication there? Those who have died since Christ. So the Old Testament saints, list any one of them you want, they're not going to be raptured with us. Okay, it's just his church, the bride. That's not a that's not a punishment to them. It's just it's not their time yet. They will come uh, during his second coming. Okay, when all will be raised, both those that will be raised to judgment and those to righteousness. Okay, so this is only those who will be raised are only those who have died since Christ who are part of the church. Um, and so then there's going to be this amazing reunion. And at this point, then I mean we're talking we're talking glorified bodies. Okay. So this is going to be just this incredible time. I don't know what it's going to be like. It's going to be amazing. I'm looking forward to it. I hope you're looking forward to it. It's going to be absolutely incredible. And it says it will be in the clouds. Some of you have heard me say this before. Listen, what's, what's the one thing you want to do if you're a superhero? What's your power? Fly. Fly. It's biblical. Okay? It was built into me to want to fly. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, God's handprint is upon me, and my desire to fly, I absolutely believe, is because of this. Okay? Other powers would be cool. Sweet. You know, Jesus walked through walls. Awesome. Maybe we'll be able to do that too. All I know is like, get ready. We're going up. We're going up. I don't know what it's going to look like. Okay. But it's going to be awesome. We're going to meet in the clouds and then we'll be with him forever. That's like the icing on the cake to be in his presence forever. No more of this. He'll be with him which then makes verse 18 make sense. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Notice it doesn't say, scare people with these words. Freak somebody out with this stuff. Right? No, it doesn't say that. That's why, listen, it's not the best idea to stand on the side of the road with a big sign that says, like, the end is near and judgment away. You know, I mean, honestly, some of that stuff is just like, oh, that freaks me out a little bit. That's not encouraging. That's not comforting. I mean, and you can comfort an unbeliever too, by the way. When you give somebody the gospel and you help them to understand where they're at, and you say, but wait, listen, listen, yes, hell is what awaits you if you, if you continue in unrepentance. But look at what would happen if you believed on Jesus Christ. You see, you can comfort anybody with these words. Now, here's the thing. No doubt you have some questions around what we've covered here. It's been brief. And what I would say to you again is that by and large, people are in agreement on the things that I've covered to this point. I would say for the most part, people agree that once again, Jesus is coming back. He's going to gather his church, that we're going to meet him in some capacity, that we will be with him forever. Okay, These are things that for the most part, everyone within the church agrees with. However, where we begin to have disagreement and where we begin to have debate is over the timing of this, especially as it relates to the timing of, of this event, the rapture, relative to what we refer to as this glorious second coming and the time of the tribulation. I want us to consider that here for a moment tonight so that we don't leave a, uh, each other hanging on this. Everyone wants to know the timing. Everyone wants to know when. I mean, that's just who we are. We want to know when. I was reading elsewhere, like, man, how many of you read the Farmer's Almanac? It's like there's somebody, there's one of you in this room that wants to know what the likelihood of snow is in South Carolina in, in 2021. Okay, you do. You just want to know. You just don't want to admit it right now. And you're, you're researching it. You want to know what's coming. We have this tendency. We want to know. We want to plan. We want to anticipate. So it's not entirely wrong. But as it relates to this, you want to know. But what does Paul say? 
Let's go on into chapter 5. In verses 1 and 2, he says, But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. So basically he's saying, stop asking me when, I'm not going to tell you. I don't know. I was like, I don't know when. You know it's going to come on you as a thief in the night. Again, let's go back to the doctrine of imminency. What does imminent mean? Anytime. The next thing. Soon. There's a variety of different definitions for it. That's what we know. That's what we know the timing is. Again, could be tonight. Could be tomorrow. We're not looking for signs, friends. What are we looking for? A Savior. That's right. We're not looking for signs. We're looking for a Savior. We're just looking for Jesus. And we're living our life then in anticipation of His return. If you truly do that, if you truly live your life in anticipation of His return, it changes the way you live, doesn't it? It ought to. Because when I'm not thinking about it, I'm probably not living the best way. So let's read on here. What does it say? Let's just continue in, in chapter 5 here in verse 3. For when they say, peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. Listen, I want you to think about this for a moment. When we went from us to they, what did we change? What is that? Is that a pronoun? Oh my gosh. Right? Pronoun. Whew. It's about to have smoke coming out of there. The point being here. Look what he's talking about now. Is he talking about the church? Who's he talking about? He says, they. He's not saying them. He's saying they. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. Verse 4, but you, you brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. Okay, so he's saying, you're not like them. It's not going to overtake you. You just be ready. Live your life in light of his return. Be watchful. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us, who are of the day, be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. Put on the armor of God, folks. Live your life. Keep your eyes fixed on Him. Keep looking for Him. Keep hoping for Him. And so, church, what we see here is that this is about how we are living right now, living in light of Christ's return so that we are not overtaken, okay? So what happens after this then? And what is the difference, you might ask, between the rapture and the second coming? Because I do believe that these are two distinct events. The rapture of the church, as you now know, is when Jesus descends from heaven, the dead in Christ are raised, those who are alive in Christ are caught up, we meet Jesus in the air, we go with him to heaven, we're with him forevermore. Jesus talked about this. He talked about it in John 14, in verses 1 through 4. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. Or what we just studied in 1 Thessalonians 4. And so this is, that's the rapture. Okay, that's the first event. Then there's the second coming. And that is when Christ comes with his church, with us. Not for us, but with us. And this is at the end of the tribulation, at the battle of Armageddon, to establish his millennial reign on the earth. 
But I'm going to go through this quickly here. What I promise you is that I'll have this chart available for you. I didn't create this. Uh, Thomas Ice and uh, Tim LaHaye in one of their books. But they just kind of compared these two things. And so I'm going to go through it fairly quick for the sake of time, okay? The rapture, Christ comes for his own. In the second coming, Christ comes with his own. In the rapture, he comes in the air. In the second coming, he comes to the earth. In the rapture, he comes to claim his bride. In the second coming, he comes with his bride. Uh, in the rapture, there is the removal of believers. In the second coming, there is the manifestation of Christ for all to see. In the rapture, only his own will see him. In the rapture, the tribulation begins. But in the second coming, there are signs during the tribulation that precede his second coming uh, that give us insight into that that time is about to occur. Okay, Again, in the rapture, the saved are delivered from wrath. No signs precede the rapture. The focus is on the Lord and His church, and the world is deceived. The world won't know what's happened. Okay, that's the one where it's like, I think it's um, Raul Reese who always talks about, uh, you know, when the rapture happens, just watch the news outlets, right? It's going to be all about the aliens that came and took us away, right? CNN's just going to be talking about the abductions that have happened and all this crazy stuff. They're going to be deceived. Whereas in the second coming, again, every eye will see Him. Okay, his millennial kingdom begins. The unsaved will experience the wrath of God, uh, but eventually, of course, Satan is bound forever. There's a lot of distinct differences, and again, I'll have that list available for you because there's scripture to go along with it, but we just don't have the time tonight. And so here's the thing. There's really no literal interpretation of scripture where these two events are one or where they happen simultaneously. And that's what some people put out there, okay? That's, that's what the belief that some have. And it's, I'm not trying to be uh, antagonistic or anything like that, but I, but I don't see where you can take a literal interpretation of Scripture and get anything other than these two events being distinctly different events. You'd, you'd have to take an allegorical approach. You'd have to assume some aspect of symbolism that something isn't really what it says uh, in Scripture. Uh, further, as you read through, again, I mentioned Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse there. As you read through Revelation, especially from chapter 4 all the way through chapter 18, it reinforces even more that Christ's return for His church and His second coming are distinctly different events. You're going to have the rapture of the church in Revelation. You're going to see that at the very beginning of Revelation chapter 4, and then you're not going to see the church at all mentioned at all through the period of the tribulation, which is described all the way through chapter 18 until you get into chapter 19 of Revelation, where you then see the second coming of Christ. And whoa, look at that. Here's the church again. I mean, these events are different. They're, they're distinctly different. So the question becomes, what's happening between the two? What's happening between the rapture of the church and his second coming? What's, what's there? The tribulation, right on, okay? That's the seven-year tribulation. Now, some say maybe the church will go through that. Let's look back for a moment at 1 Thessalonians. Think about what we discussed there in chapter 4 and then the beginning of chapter 5. Did Paul anywhere in 1 Thessalonians 4 or in 5 suggest that they would be around for the great day of the Lord? No, that was part of their concern. Going into 2 Thessalonians as well, their concern was, oh no, we missed the rapture and now it's the day of the Lord and persecution is happening. And Paul's like, no. So he's saying the opposite here. So when people say, I think the church is going to go through the tribulation, again, I'm not trying to be mean here, but I just, when I look at Scripture and I read it literally, I just can't understand how they believe that that would be the case. I mean, to that end, look at verses 9 through 11 in chapter 5. Look at this. Verse 9 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. For God did not appoint us to wrath. So why would we be there? for his wrath when it's poured out. 
rather to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us. Now, some would say there in particular, they'd say, well, maybe that means like eternal wrath, like hell forever. But again, you look at it within the context of the way in which Paul is saying it, and he's talking to them about the day of the Lord. He says, verse 10, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Listen, I don't know how many of you, this is a sad thing if this ever happens, and I'm sure it's happened before, but generally speaking, nobody expects for the bridegroom to stand down at the end of the aisle and watch his bride walk down the aisle, and after they say their I do's, he goes out back and he beats her. Does anybody expect that? No. That would only be the case in sinful humanity. If we are his bride... He's redeemed us, he's bought us with his own blood, then why would he say, now you got to go through this? And furthermore, he says then again there, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him, therefore comfort each other and edify one another, just as you also are doing. He says, comfort one another. That's not comforting. How am I going to say, how am I going to comfort you and say, well, get ready. His wrath is about to be poured out. No, I'm going to comfort you by saying, we don't have to go through it, folks. Believe on Christ. Escape this. I mean, also in Revelation, in chapter 3, verse 10, Jesus himself says, I will also keep you from the hour of testing that is going to come over the whole world. He says what Jesus says, I'm going to keep you from that. The hour of testing, just before in chapter 4, where he begins to talk about the tribulation, by the way, where he also, in chapter 4, in 1 through 3, he talks to the churches, the different churches. In chapter 4, what does he say to John? John, come up to heaven. Come up here. And then let me show you what's going to happen to everybody down there as I spare you from the hour. I mean, it's all right there. It's telling us, you, the church, you're not going to go through this. Okay, and then again, chapter 19, second coming, church is back. And so the church in Thessalonica was concerned about missing the rapture, about being there for the day of the Lord and during his wrath. And Paul doesn't suggest at all that they will be, but rather he encourages them that they're going to be removed. And we can have that same hope, that same encouragement. So then what is the purpose of the tribulation? It's not to purify the church. It's to bring judgment on the earth, and it's primarily, I believe, to prepare Israel. This is the time of Jacob's trouble. Now, right now, we are living in the time of the Gentiles. We are living within the church age, the time of the Gentiles. God's program of salvation is continuing to unfold until he brings in the fullness of the Gentiles. And when that's complete... Therein is what we expect to be the rapture of the church. Church is removed, making the way for his focus on his promises with Israel and the work that he's going to do with Israel. This idea of the fullness of the Gentiles is why then when people are talking about when the rapture would come and we equate that to, man, we've got to make sure we continue to share the gospel, that everybody would have the, the chance to hear the gospel. And that's where you may hear some of that conversation, right? And we're not going to go into that tonight in terms of God, how God reveals himself. You know, you know what about the what about the little lady in the rice paddy who's never heard the gospel? Okay, God created her. She's, he's going to make sure. He's, now, that's not saying we don't need to go out and share the gospel, okay? But God is going to make sure that his, his word goes forth. But that's where we get the idea, that concept, that when God says, okay, everybody on earth, every Gentile, every person that, that he has in his foreknowledge called, when that time is complete... That will bring to an end the time of the church, the church age, and the time of the Gentiles. And that will usher in what then we know as the 70th week of Daniel. Okay, now, trust me, we don't have time to go back to Daniel this evening. But many of you have likely heard about the, the, the 70 weeks or the 77s. 
Those are periods, those are seven-year periods, 69 of which have already been completed in history. In terms of Daniel's prophecy, 69 of those seven-year periods have been completed. Now we're living in what's kind of like a parenthesis, a pause in all of that. So 483 years of Daniel's prophecies have been completed, and there's one more seven-year period that will be preceded by the rapture and conclude with the second coming. Okay, so what does that mean? What's the implication there? I could have started with this, but what this means is what I'm teaching you is what I believe, what Calvary Chapel believes, is a pre-tribulation rapture of the church. Some people would teach mid, that it would take place in the middle of that seven-year period. Others may teach a post-tribulation. Again, I struggle to see how that could be the case, particularly in the case of the rapture, whether it be mid or whether it be post. If there are no signs that precede the rapture, if there's no signs of when that would come, then I don't see how that could happen because we have very clear, I mean, Scripture tells us pretty clearly what's going to be happening during that seven-year period. For the, for the rapture to come as a thief in the night, I think it has to come before the tribulation for it to truly be kind of unknown to anybody and, and sudden, okay? Um, so what happens after the tribulation? We'll start winding down here. What happens after the tribulation? The millennial reign of Christ. Second coming, battle of Armageddon, millennial reign of Christ. A literal, and I do believe a literal 1,000-year reign. Why do I believe it's a literal 1,000-year reign? Because the Bible says it's a 1,000 years. It doesn't say it was like it doesn't say that it's a symbol. It says that he will reign on the earth and we with him, his church with him for a thousand years. Why is it important for him to reign for a thousand years? Well, if we're in the church age, the fullness of the Gentiles, that coming to an end, who's he then going to focus on again? Israel. He's made promises to them. As far as I know, God keeps his promises. There's two that have yet to be fulfilled. Do you know what they are? The Abrahamic covenant is found in Genesis chapter 12, the land They've never, Israel has yet to occupy all of the land that God had promised them. And secondly, we see it in 2 Samuel, the Davidic covenant, that you will sit on a forever throne. Someone from your line, David, will be on the throne forever. And so in that millennial reign, in that thousand-year reign, they're going to occupy all the land that God had promised them, and they're going to have Jesus sitting on a forever throne. And who's going to be ruling with him? We are. The church. How amazing is that? How incredible is that? So, of the return of Christ, his second coming, we believe in a pre-millennial return, okay? So we are pre-trib, and we are pre-millennial as it relates to his second coming, as opposed to post, right? Some, some believe is, uh, that there's a post-millennial where the church ushers in the millennium, and then you got premillennial, postmillennial, and you've got amillennial. The amillennial really believes that the whole idea of the thousand-year reign is more symbolic, that there's no literal thousand-year reign. The other, the post, really, what they, I think the significant thing that we should know there is that that's a group that would basically take the rapture of the church and the second coming of Christ and would put those into the same event. And they would basically say that you get caught up to come right back down and that those two events are the same. But here's the thing. I mean, in addition to what I've already shared with you, that to me it makes sense, especially when we read Revelation, especially when we read Daniel, it makes sense to me that those events are very distinct. But also when we look at the practice 
of a Jewish wedding. That right there is like, holy smokes. I mean, when you think about, okay, what happens? The bride is, is betrothed, right? There's a process. The bridegroom, what does he do before the wedding? Goes to his father's house. What does he do at his father's house? He builds a house. He prepares a place. Then when the place is done, he comes and he gets the bride. And do they go to the wedding feast? No. He takes her home. And then they go there for seven days. And then they come to the wedding feast. Oh my gosh. It's almost kind of like there's a parallel there, right? I go and I prepare a place for you. If it were not so, I would have told you. And I'll come for you again, my bride. I'll take you to my father's house. And then after seven years, seven days, we'll go and we'll have a wedding feast, the marriage supper of the Lamb. After that battle of Armageddon as the millennial reign is ushered in. I mean, to me, it all fits. There's a lot there. And it's time for us to close. Here's the thing. Let's look as we close at Revelation 22. Last chapter. Revelation 22, verse 12 and following. And behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me, to give to everyone according to his work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life, and may enter through the gates into the city. But outside are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and whoever loves and practices a lie. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. And the spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. And let him who thirsts, come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes from the works or the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming quickly. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may it be the heart of each of us here tonight and those watching, those who will, Lord, may it be all of our hearts, Lord, as a result of your Spirit working in us, that we too would say, come, Lord Jesus, that we would have such a desire for you, Lord, that our hearts would long for you, Lord, that each and every day we would be looking for your return, living our life in light of your return, crying out, Maranatha, Lord Jesus, come. We thank you, Lord, for these promises. We thank you, Lord, for caring enough and loving us enough to make a way. Lord, help us by your Spirit to live each day in a way that's pleasing to you until that day, Lord, when you gather up your church and call us home. Father, we love you and we praise you. We give you thanks and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Here at CCNE, there are so many events happening throughout the week, so make sure you're subscribed to the weekly e-bulletin so you can be fully informed of all that we're doing. For more info, or if there are any prayer requests you'd like to share with us, be sure to visit us at ccnortheast.org.